I think I got good advice from um, uh, Jeff Drazen, who was one of my mentors uh, back in Boston. And I was interested in lots of different things. I was interested in ARDS and in sleep apnea and other things. And he gave me good advice. He said, uh, he said to get very good at something, and then you can dabble in other things. Hello, and welcome to the Breathe Easy podcast, hosted by myself, Dominic Pepper. In this podcast, we ask an expert clinician, teacher, or researcher to share their insights about career opportunities in the fields of critical care, pulmonary medicine, or sleep medicine. And for today, we go to San Diego to discuss work-life balance. The advice I usually give people is to focus on writing original manuscripts because that's sort of the currency these days by which we're judged. Uh, before we get started, would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. My name is Dr. Atul Malhotra. I'm head of pulmonary critical care and sleep medicine at University of California, San Diego, and I'm immediate past president of the American Thoracic Society. Um, can you tell me your story about how you became the chief of pulmonary and critical care um, and the director of sleep medicine at UCSD, and specifically your experiences as a resident and fellow and how they impacted your decision to pursue critical care and pulmonary medicine? Sure, absolutely. Um, I did my residency at the Mayo Clinic in the mid-1990s. I very much enjoyed critical care there. Rolf Hobmeyer was one of my mentors there, and I very much uh, look forward to doing critical care. Uh, I went to uh, Boston for uh, my fellowship, mainly because my girlfriend at the time, now my wife, was out there. And so I did pulmonary and critical care fellowship at Mass General and Brigham Women's Hospital. And while on the consult service, uh, my attending was a guy named David White, who ended up being my mentor in sleep medicine. And sort of the rest was history as far as my interest in that area was concerned. So I was at Harvard Medical School for I think 17 years in total before I came out to San Diego in 2013. And uh, the opportunity in San Diego was quite uh, strong, very strong division that uh, uh, needed uh, new leadership. The uh, prior leadership, Patricia Finn, had done a very good job, but she had left for uh, University of Illinois Chicago since they're looking for a new person. I'd always been tied uh, or interested in San Diego because of the you know, the environment, both the intellectual environment and the physical environment. And as it happens in my family, a lot of it is in Los Angeles area, so it's sort of been a second home to me in Southern California. Great. Um, you triple boarded in uh, pulmonary medicine, critical care, and sleep, um, and you've achieved, uh, you've had a number of achievements uh, over the last uh, the, the two to three decades. Um, how do you manage to do it? Uh, how do you find the time and how do you find the energy? Um, well, thank you for the question, and I, I do have some humility in this. So uh, there are plenty of people more successful than I am and smarter than I am. I, I do what I, I do, and I, I enjoy what I do. Um, I think I got good advice from um, uh, Jeff Drazen, who was one of my mentors uh, back in Boston, and I was interested in lots of different things. I was interested in ARDS and in sleep apnea and other things. And, and uh, I was accused of being unfocused or, or being kind of all over the place and, and not having a, a niche. And I asked him I, uh, the question, because he, he had a similar background since he'd done a lot of leukotriene biology and he was interested in 
high frequency ventilation and whatnot. And I asked him, did people accuse you of being uh, unfocused or diffuse or what have you? And he gave me good advice. He said, uh, he said to get very good at something, and then you can dabble in other things. And so he got very good at leukotriene biology, and then was sort of dabbling and working in other areas. And so I took that advice. I got very good, I think, at uh, upper airway physiology, which is where many of my publications are. And I sort of dabbled in other areas. There's a common theme underlying my various interests, though, and it's, it's sort of applied physiology. And so my argument is, if you understand mechanism, that you can apply it to various different diseases, whether the disease is asthma or COPD or sleep apnea or ARDS. It doesn't really matter that much if the underlying mechanisms are uh, understood. You mentioned that you were the president of the American Thoracic Society, and in addition to that, you've been a co-investigator in the PI in numerous studies. You've received grants totaling more than a million dollars. You've had numerous teaching excellence awards. Um, what opportunities um, were you able to take advantage of uh, in the ATS, um, and what advice would you give to a fellow or junior faculty member who's deciding to pursue an academic career and wants to use resources at the ATS? Yeah, so I think the ATS for me has been uh, pretty critical for my career. I often say that people wouldn't have heard of me apart from the American Thoracic Society. My publications are in a relatively narrow niche, at least some of them are. And um, so the ATS has been very good for my career. My advice for young people is just to get involved. And there are various ways to do that, but find a senior mentor who's involved in ATS. And if you don't have one, just email uh, the incoming president, who's right now is Mark Moss, is uh, currently populating committees of various kinds with enthusiastic young people, and so if you want to get involved, just send him an email or send one to ATS staff, and we'll try and include you, and it's very much a society that encourages participation. And as you may know, some of our focus in the last several years, including my own presidency, was on the next generation, trying to attract and retain the best and brightest into our field. So if you're a young person who wants to get involved, that's kind of music to my ears, and so I do encourage you to volunteer to get involved, and then if you are involved on a committee or in some other capacity to, to really participate and, and spend the time to, to do a good job. And for myself, uh, early on, I think I volunteered to be on the education committee, and I worked very hard and was honored that I was selected to be the chair of that committee when I was quite junior. And again, the rest was sort of history there. Once I was uh, in that position, then I was in a position to run for the head of my assembly, and once you're on the board of directors, it becomes much easier to run for uh, leadership positions. Well, what advice would you give them about uh, networking and how to go about uh, finding uh, appropriate mentors? And Yeah, so that comes down to personality. I think I, I have a personality that... Um, people uh, or I get to know people whether they want to, <laughs> whether they know me or not they they, they tend to uh to to get to know me so th there's a lot to um to say about just being around so if you're at a meeting uh, just being sometimes going for beer with people after the the sessions those kinds of things are a way to to meet people and to network if you're more uh introverted and, and not of that uh, uh persuasion or, or of that uh type then, as I say, try and identify somebody more senior who can help introduce you to others. So I do a fair amount of that at the ATS meeting or at other meetings, for that matter, where there's somebody junior that wants to get involved and they really want to meet Dr. So-and-so. We'll have um, 
opportunities to introduce them and to get to know one another. I'll give you one example. There, one of my junior faculty in San Diego recently was quite shy. Said he was very impressed with the work of so and so, and he said I'd really love to talk to him and meet him. I'm reading all of his papers and I love them and, and etc. He said, "Do you know him?" And I said, "Yeah, of course I know him." And, and so we invited that person to be a visiting professor and to, to give talks and and all that. And that became a very useful way for this person to, to people to interact and to get to know one another. And the junior faculty was not the sort that would just call the guy up and start talking to him because he's shy. But you know, face-to-face -face sort of session where he was there as a visiting professor became much easier. Well, um, I've had the chance to go through your CV, and despite having all these achievements, you still take the time to go to Rwanda and be an attending um, in an ICU there. Can you share some of that experience with us and what motivates you uh, to go to Africa and help? Um, sure. I um, very much have an interest in global health, and I'm not sure where it came from exactly. It just sort of seemed like the right thing to do. The experience in uh, Rwanda in the ICU in Kigali at uh, King Faisal Hospital, I was only there for a few weeks. It wasn't like I've dedicated my life to this as, as others have, um, but it was sort of a career-defining for me in some ways. There was a group going there from Spokane, Washington to, to do critical care work. They needed a, an intensivist, and so I um, signed up. It was just before I joined ATS Leaderships, so I thought I would have uh, some block of time there that was... Uh, not likely to happen for the, the foreseeable future, so so the timing was right in that regard, and uh, my wife and kids were, were supportive of that uh, trip at, at the time. And so I went there, and for me it was career-defining. We took care of uh, patients, some lived and some, some didn't, but we did our best. But what I learned during that time was that we can go there and solve some problems and perhaps create others, but what really makes a lasting difference is uh, is building capacity. And so I did a fair amount of teaching when I was there and lecturing and and that, but uh, unless you sort of make a lasting impact on the doctors and nurses who are there by teaching them and by empowering them and other things, it's unlikely that spending a week or two or a month or two here or there is going to make much of a difference. And so that's when I came up with the um, concept of the Global Scholars Program that ATS is currently uh, leading, where we do webinar-based education for uh, students and doctors around the world, and it's over the internet, and people can learn these lectures. They take pre and post tests, and at the end of uh, the curriculum, over the course of a, a year, there's 25 lectures, one every two weeks. Uh, they'll get a certificate saying they're a global scholar of the American Thoracic Society, and that concept came from the idea that we need to build capacity in various under-resourced areas. So we have uh, deliberately started uh, somewhat small, but we now have uh, roughly 200 students, I think, who are signed up. Uh, we're in 11 countries in South America, in Africa, and in Asia. And uh, I'm quite proud of that program and the ATS for supporting that program. As I say, that came from the experiences I had in Rwanda and subsequently in Mozambique. Well, a really important work. Um, you, you had the opportunity to mentor a number of uh, junior faculties and fellows. What advice have you given them, or, or what mistakes have you seen them make, um, and what advice have you given them to to help them develop their career? Yeah, I'll say several things there. One is what I said earlier, and that is the importance of original publications. Um, I have written a lot of reviews and chapters over the years, and those are helpful, but 
The currency by which we're judged is usually original manuscripts. So I emphasize the importance of those things. That's the first thing. The second thing is um, regarding moonlighting. And it's something that I understand people have financial strains and they have uh, other responsibilities, but um, I'm fond of saying that there are much better ways of making money than, than moonlighting. Um, I've never moonlighted in my life, but I, I've done reasonably well financially. There, there's other ways of uh, supplementing income, either through consulting or through other uh, endeavors. And again, that's where a mentor can be helpful in terms of uh, finding out sources of, uh, of income. Um, but I've seen some people who are very bright and very talented who spend their research fellowships uh, moonlighting here, there, and everywhere. And it does limit their productivity and their success and makes it very hard to be uh, uh, successful if you're if you're tired all the time or if you're in some nursing home uh, doing uh, laxative reorders in the middle of the night. It makes it very hard to be uh, a productive scientist the next day. And so limiting time uh, outside of the lab and family is, is something I, I emphasize. And the third thing is just <clears throat> that there is a payoff in these areas, but it's somewhat delayed. So... I could make a lot more money than I do today if I, if I did something else, but I do reasonably well financially, but that took a little bit of time to get there. So when you're starting out as junior faculty, your salary may seem quite modest, but as you develop expertise and as you develop a reputation, then people start to pay you for your opinion, you're, you're, you become more valued, and your salary goes up concomitantly. So sometimes it's a matter that the moonlighting shift or the other outside activities or even private practice may seem appealing when you're just starting out, but eventually you do much better. You have a better lifestyle and more flexibility in your schedule if you sort of stick with it, develop some expertise that is uh, valued, and then, uh, as I say, you do fine financially in academic medicine. For um, fellows who are considering a career as a pulmonologist or in critical care sleep medicine, what do you think the field is going to look like in the next 10 to 15 years? Um, it's hard for me to tell the future, particularly in these sort of uncertain political times. I don't know what's going to change. My guess is that our expertise will become more valued, not less. Um, the... Um, the sort of mom-and-pop shops that where people used to be able to hang up a shingle and take care of patients, I think that's becoming tougher and tougher with uh, health care reform and with electronic medical records and all the burdens uh, placed on those individuals. Uh, in addition, I think patient expectations, these things have changed over the years. So the idea that somebody could be in solo practice or in private practice and be at the beck and call of, uh, of their patients, I think that's getting harder. So... I think more and more there's value to the expertise that we provide in academic medical centers, and I think that will become even more so over time. I think there'll be development of centers of excellence. There'll be more uh, emphasis on uh, highly efficient care, high-quality care, those sorts of things. And I really believe that there's strength in numbers if we work together in large academic medical centers with, with uh, centers of excellence. I think there'll be more reliance on technology as well. Currently, it's hard to do things via Skype or via um, Google Hangouts with, with patients because of HIPAA rules and because of other uh, billing requirements, et cetera. But my guess is that will evolve over time where we'll be able to do routine checkups uh, uh, electronically, and that would probably make things uh, much easier. 
And specifically in the field of sleep medicine, do you foresee any big changes or innovations, advances that should happen in the next 10 to 15 years? Um, it's already happening, but I think it will continue to happen over time. There are now cloud-based technologies where um, I can monitor a patient's CPAP in their home via the modem in their machine, and I have a, a kind of joke that big, big Brother is watching, but to some extent it is, and I, I can see who's having a good night versus a bad night via the, the Internet. I can make adjustments to the equipment via the Internet, and I can uh, you know, help facilitate very good outcomes. There are also technologies now that give real-time patient feedback about how is the equipment working, is there a leak, is there some other issue that they can address, give positive reinforcement if a patient's doing well, give helpful hints if they're doing poorly. And we actually have a study that's under uh, peer review now that we can get adherence rates up to 90% using these technology-based approaches that uh, help to, to motivate patients to, to be adherent with, with therapy. So I think, um, you know, the technology and um, social support and these other things will be very helpful for adherence, not just in the sleep world, but pr probably for patients in general. I think there's there's some data in smoking cessation. I believe there's some in obesity with weight loss as well, and now evolving with, with uh, CPAP in sleep apnea where patients can uh, uh, be motivated and be uh, uh, encouraged to, to use the therapies more consistently, and I think that's uh, an innovation. Great. We're also working on the science of sleep apnea. I think it's a relatively young field, but hopefully with ongoing um, efforts in terms of personalized medicine and individualized therapy, we're starting to understand underlying mechanisms better and be able to tailor therapy based on underlying mechanisms. So my, my hope is we'll have a, a new treatment or a new treatment approach in the coming years. And then my last question to you is, um, and, and, and it's a hypothetical question, if you had to do it all over again, but starting as a fellow now in 2017, uh, would you do it any differently? Uh, would you uh, have a, a different focus? I think the short answer is no. I, I'm happy doing what I'm doing, and I really couldn't imagine doing anything else. I, I see people in other areas who do well. I, I know there was a period where I had a lot of friends on Wall Street who were <laughs> doing very well financially, and I sort of was doing very poorly financially, and I sort of was somewhat jealous with the greener grass on the other side of the fence. But, uh, you know, when the global financial crash happened, but doctors did pretty well through all that, and my friends on Wall Street were were then jealous of me. And so I, um, I, I enjoy doing what I'm doing. I feel rewarded and it's not all about money. You know, I feel good about what I do. The flexibility in my schedule I have as an academic is good as well. So, for example, if my daughter has a soccer game, I can go home at 4 o'clock and watch the game and then work after she's asleep. And nobody's going to stop me from doing that unless I'm on service in the ICU or something. I can set my own schedule, and there's really no external force that tells me when I can when I have to go into work or when I have to come home or whatever else. I can work over the Internet and write grants and manuscripts and, and do all of that. And as I say, unless I'm on service in the ICU or in clinic, um, there's a lot of flexibility in my schedule. I'm not saying that I don't work hard. Of course I do, but I work on my own terms. And if my younger daughter has a dance recital and my older daughter has a softball game, I, I go to those things. And I, that, to me, that's important. And I have that flexibility because of the career path I chose. Great. Uh, work-life balance, um, 
is a recurring theme uh, that's discussed by fellows. Would you give them any pointers as how to maintain it? I think you've alluded to it in some way already. Sure. First, I'll say it's important. Some people say, well, I'll work hard now and then I'll have time to relax later. And, and I think that's probably not the right way to do it. Certainly work hard, but make sure that your protected time is is protected. I recently actually heard a TED talk on this that to me was quite helpful. It was a, a woman who was talking about time management. And she was a, a regular lady. It wasn't like she was sort of some super achiever, but she studied it quite uh, thoughtfully. And she, she made a couple of points that were interesting. But one of them was she said, we probably sleep for about 50 hours in a week. We probably work for about 50 hours in a week. That's about 100 hours. And she said, there's 168 hours in a week. So she said, there's really 68 hours you have to play with to do whatever you want. If you want to train for a marathon or if you want to spend 10 hours learning the cello or if you want to spend 10 hours uh, playing with your kids, there's nothing really stopping you. It's just a matter of managing your time in such a way that you prioritize those things that are important. And so to know that you have 68 hours every week that are um, somewhat flexible, at least, is empowering in many ways because you can you can get things done during that time. Now, people say, well, I work more than 50 hours a week, but it's not much more than 50. And people say, maybe I sleep more than 50, but it's not much more than that. And so there is some flexibility in the schedule, even for those of us who are very busy. I think it's empowering to look at the total amount of time and, and uh, figure out how best to allocate it. That's something I emphasize. Thank you very much. I really appreciate your very thoughtful answers, and I've, I've learned a great deal. A big thank you to Dr. Atul Malhotra for joining me, and thank you to all of you for listening to the Breathe Easy podcast. I'm Dominic Pepper for the American Thoracic Society.